0: Everybody underestimates the class clown. They're lazy, they're unfocused, and in most cases, they're pretty disruptive. They'd rather crack a joke than crack a book. The thing is, they're the ones you want to watch out for. Because left to their own devices, they might wreak untold havoc. Or start their own companies. In the late 1950s and early 60s, a new phenomenon was taking hold of America's youth. And in a surprising place, Ivy League Universities. It was called phone-freaking, with a PH, and it was an early form of hacking. Freakers, as they were called, would find new and innovative ways to disrupt landline phone systems. For example, they might impersonate switchboard operators or telephone company employees while talking to unsuspecting customers. They would also pay attention to the tones that rang out when calls were routed or ended. Freakers with perfect pitch could then replicate those tones with a whistle to open a phone line to connect themselves long distance for free. As time went on, however, those who couldn't whistle wound up relying on simple devices to create those sounds for them. One such device was made famous by former United States Air Force engineer John Draper. Draper had come into the possession of a bosun's pipe, a kind of signaling tool used by the Navy to send commands to a ship's crew— But how did a member of the U.S. Air Force get hold of a Navy whistle? Why, straight from a captain, of course. Captain Crunch. The little plastic pipes were given away as prizes in boxes of cereal starting in the mid-1960s. It didn't take long for Draper to discover a hidden secret about them, though. When he blew into the mouthpiece of his phone, the whistle made a perfect 2600 Hz tone, the exact frequency needed to take over a phone line on AT&T. Draper's little hack, and the tool he used to do it, earned him the nickname Captain Crunch, and led to the creation of new technology centered around bypassing onerous telephone company charges. They were called blue boxes, small electronic pads capable of generating the same tones as the serial toy they were based on. Phone freaking was not as widespread as computer hacking is today, but it did spread pretty far and wide. Still, from its inception in the 1950s all the way to the 1970s, freaking hadn't caught on beyond pockets of enthusiasts who enjoyed pushing the limits of social and telephone engineering. But around 1971, the blue box would grow beyond its limited user group to a wider audience, with the help of a couple of guys from California. Steve was in high school when he became best friends with a student at nearby UC Berkeley. They spent much of their downtime tinkering around with electronics, and that's when Steve realized the widespread potential in a digitized blue box, not just as a nerdy hobby for bored teenagers and college kids, but as a real business. So they reached out to John Draper and learned everything they could before building and selling their own blue boxes. Looking back, it was the start of a legendary and lucrative partnership, Steve tried his hand at college after graduating high school, but realized after one semester it just wasn't for him, and so he dropped out. Instead, he got a job in the relatively new video game industry, at a little company called Atari. He moved in with his girlfriend and even took a spiritual journey to India. Upon his return home, though, Atari presented him with a challenge. They were working on a new arcade game called Breakout, and Steve was put in charge of building the circuit board. They even incentivized him by promising a larger bonus if he could reduce the board's size. There was just one problem. Steve couldn't really build circuit boards. In fact, he'd lied his way into the job at the company. He wasn't really an engineer at all, but his friend from UC Berkeley sure was. With his help, Steve earned a whopping $5,000 for handing in a smaller, more efficient circuit board for the game. He told his friend that they'd only made $700 and gave him half, just $350 pocketing the rest for himself. Even when his friend eventually found out what Steve had done, though, it didn't change their partnership. They soon went into business together again, designing their own circuit boards. Oh, and screens. And software. And if you haven't figured it out by now, our Steve was Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple Computer. And his friend? Also a Steve. Steve Wozniak. Or Woz. Together, they helped build one of the most successful and influential companies in the world. And 30 years after its founding, Jobs took the phone companies on one more time. This time, though, he traded in his blue box for a glass rectangle, the beginning of a sensation that changed the way we communicate forever. And that, my friends, is how Captain Crunch, in a roundabout sort of way, gave the world the iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.
0: The ship had a name meant for greatness. It's hard to believe they were shooting for anything less when they christened the Clippers' ship Neptune's Car. Few people would have known that better than Mary Patton. After all, her husband was the ship's captain, And Mary had traveled with him on his successful voyages to San Francisco, China, and London. On those trips, he had turned Neptune's car into a symbol of swift sailing. So in 1856, there were more than a few clients. New York merchants had machines and supplies ready for California gold mines. So Neptune's car was loaded with cargo, and on the 1st of July, the ship headed out to open sea. Again, Mary was on board— and this journey would be a long one, all the way from New York to San Francisco, by way of the dangerous Cape Horn far to the south. It was going to be a 15,000-mile trip. She might have been a quiet New Englander, but Mary was also educated, curious, and fiercely intelligent. On their earlier voyages, Mary's husband had taught her the art and science of navigation, measuring the sun's angle and calculating the ship's position. She even turned out to be the quicker mathematician, mathematician and she watched him command the three dozen men on his crew as they pushed the Neptune's car to incredible speed. It's a good thing, too, because their journey in 1856 would turn out to be a fateful one. To start with, there was trouble with the first mate, Mr. Keeler. He'd been a last-minute addition to their crew, and as the days rolled by, it became clear that he wasn't taking his work seriously. He slept through his watches. He ignored orders to furl and unfurl sails, In fact, it became clear that he wasn't doing much of anything at all. Soon enough, Mary and the rest of the crew would learn why. You see, Neptune's car wasn't the only ship that had left New York that summer, headed for San Francisco. Others had launched as well, and as you can guess, there were plenty of people who had placed bets on which ship would reach their destination first. It was something of a race, actually. Mr. Keeler, though, thought he had an ace up his sleeve. He bet against the Neptune's car, his own ship. He thought he could do enough to slow down the clipper and collect winnings on his return. But he got something else instead. Mary's husband had him seized and thrown into the brig. It was only after that drama that the ship sailed into a massive storm. Wind and rain and powerful waves crashed against the ship for eight days straight. On the other side, the ship came through unscathed, but Mary's husband wasn't as lucky. After the effort of surviving the storm, he collapsed, He was delirious and couldn't even stand. The crew said he had what they called brain fever. First, Mary ordered her thrashing, raving husband tied down to his bunk. She tried to nurse him back to health, but he didn't seem to respond. And with Mr. Keeler locked up for his attempt to sabotage the journey, there was no one in command. So that's when Mary stepped in. On top of nursing her sick husband, Mary was soon enough setting the ship's course. Working with the second mate, she had the crew working overtime, headed again for San Francisco. But that's where Mr. Keeler saw an opportunity. From his place in lockup, he scribbled a note that the crew brought to Mary. Think of the dangers, he wrote. Think of the huge weights of responsibility. Wouldn't it just be easier if you let me out and let me take control of the ship? Mary's response was brief. He had proved himself unfit for command, so he would stay below. Furious with Mary, Mr. Keeler tried to rally the crew against her, but when Mary caught wind of the plot, she called the mates and sailors to the aft of the ship, and she addressed them. They knew what had happened before. They knew what Mr. Keeler had done, and they were beginning to sense Mary's mettle as well. If they stood by her, she said, she would get them safely to San Francisco. Every single man in the weather-beaten crew gave her their word. They would stand by her, For weeks, Mary guided the Neptune's car through its treacherous voyage. They slipped through storms as they rounded Cape Horn. They dodged icebergs in the narrow passage. Mary held the crew together as they waded out doldrums. And when the clouds were too impenetrable for Mary to use her sextant, she led them by dead reckoning. So it was under her firm hand that the ship, crew, and cargo got back on course and reached San Francisco on November 15th. When they neared the Golden Gate Bay, Mary personally took the helm and guided the ship to port. She had managed a crew of three dozen men and kept her husband alive, through storm, sickness, and a failed insurrection. When she stepped off of Neptune's car, Mary told the company officers that she hadn't been able to change her clothes for 50 days. She was happy to leave the vessel in their care and find herself and her husband a place to rest and recover. I can only imagine their dumbfounded looks as they agreed. It took some time for the enormity of Mary's achievement to hit home. She had commanded a clipper ship for 56 days, and the newspapers of the time said she brought it into port better than any of her competitors. Not to mention that she beat all of them but one. By some accounts, this made her the first woman to command an American merchant vessel. But there are a couple more things that make her achievements even more remarkable. First, when they left New York that July... Mary was already four months pregnant. And second, when Mary Patton took command of Neptune's car, she was just 19 years old. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works.